You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello there and hello there. Welcome along to episode 92 of Attaboy Clarence. They just keep barreling along towards that fabled century. Gosh, how I wish I knew what the future held. Soon you'll be able to walk into your Admiral Dealer's store and confidently buy the style radio or radio phonograph you want. Won't that be a red-letter day? The selection of Admiral radios will be complete. There'll be radio phonographs with the famous Admiral exclusive features. Slide away. That makes loading and unloading your record changer so easy. It's so much more convenient than MP3s. And the foolproof Admiral automatic record changer. Foolproof, Mark Hill. There'll be consoles and table models and newly designed cabinets of fine woods and modern plastics. There'll be farm sets and portables in many styles and sizes, including the popular Admiral Bantam, the camera-type radio that operates on alternating current, direct current, or self-contained batteries. I must admit, I really hate when I've got music to listen to and all they have at the abattoir is direct current. There'll be new electronic refinements and AM, FM, and shortwave reception. All three receptions, good. So, whatever you want in radio, you'll find it in an Admiral, America's smart set. You can get a very good idea of what Admiral will offer if you're right for a free copy of the new, full-colored booklet entitled It's a Promise from Admiral. Just write your name and address on a penny postcard and mail it to Admiral in care of this radio station. Ah, good. Well, I have a penny postcard, so which radio station are you? Just your name and address mailed to Admiral at this station. Yes, I, I just need to know which radio station... H- hello? Hello? little glimpse into the future for you there. Uh, I know you're going to be mighty busy during the next five days, friend. Oh, it's another one. And I also know that uh, you don't want to wake up Christmas morning with a cold. That's what you think. But have you noticed old man cold is really making the rounds? Let's hope he doesn't catch up with you. However, if you should feel a cold coming on, remember Alka-Seltzer. Yes, remember and try Alka-Seltzer for fast relief from much of your cold distress. Here's the ABC cold comfort treatment. A, Alka-Seltzer. Fairly obvious, yes. B, B-Y. Beware of drafts, be careful of your diet, and be sure you dress sensibly and try to get more rest than usual. B is fairly comprehensive, isn't it? Surely C has to be cure. Cold remedy? Oh, uh, I know. Um... And C stands for comfort. The comfort an Alka-Seltzer gargle can give a sore throat caused by a cold. I was going to say comfort. Honestly, that was my next guess. Well, actually, curtains was my next guess, but I couldn't explain why. Followed by condom. Well, there it is, friends. Alka-Seltzer's ABC cold comfort treatment, as easy as ABC to follow and really effective. Remember, when you begin to sniffle and sneeze, start Alka-Seltzer's ABCs. Get Alka-Seltzer at any drugstore... And say, better buy that extra package, too. Yes, buy two, you filthy junkie. That's the wisest thing to do. Gotcha. Well, what have I got coming up for you today? A dip into the question pot is coming up. I'll be reviewing three classic movies, one of which required a field trip, and one of which will necessitate the use of an old familiar device that hasn't seen the sun for some time. I've got a competition for you to enter. I've got a radio play for you. I also have some music right now. This is the great Sir Lancelot with a song that, if you're feeling a little fragile, may, well, f*** up your state of mind even further, for which I apologise. This is the quite self-explanatory Donkey City. He exercises his donkey. So the mule said to the donkey, Saga boy, now don't you molest me, donkey, whoa. 
Don't bother me now, I tell you. Pass you nothing but a donkey. Aha, just a silly old donkey. Aha, and I don't like a donkey. Aha, when he's looking so funny. Aha, so the mule said to the donkey, Saga boy, now don't you molest me, donkey. Whoa. Don't bother me now, I tell you. Donkeys can talk, you see, mainly to complain about being molested. How are you feeling? City with me uncle Billy and me uncle met a Yankee girl. So the girl said, Uncle Billy, Saka boy, now don't you molest me, Uncle Ho. Don't bother me now, I tell you. Cause you're not but a donkey, just a silly old donkey. And I don't like a donkey when he ain't got no money. So the girl said, Uncle Billy. Saga boy, now don't you molest me, Uncle Ho. Don't bother me now, I tell you. So me Uncle Billy, feeling rather silly, whispered sweetly to the Yankee girl. Now although I got no money, Feeling all I love you, me honey, but she said no. Don't bother me now, I tell you. Cause you're not but a donkey, just a silly old donkey. Aha, and I don't like a donkey. Aha, when he's looking so funny. Aha, so the girl said, Uncle Vinnie, like a boy now, don't you molest me, Uncle Ho. Don't bother me now, I tell you. Now you've heard my story of me Uncle Billy, of the mule, the donkey and the girl. Now if you don't like my story, it's too bad cause I got your money, Uncle Ho. Don't bother me now, I tell you. And that was Donkey City from Sir Lancelot, a song about, I think, donkeys being molested. So anyway, hi. Maybe you have a question. Well, throw it into the question pot. Strangely, there is no next line. Well, maybe I'll read your question out on the show, or maybe not. Now, here's someone with a handbell. Into the squalid inch of liquid at the bottom of the question pot we go, and the first conundrum I pluck from the puddle is from the glorious Emma Park. Hi, Emma. Emma's question reads, Dear Adam, you are clearly a man of even more talents than your loving fans were already aware of. Thank you. The Dr. Crespi Inner Voice remix was the best dance music I've heard in ages. Clearly, I don't get out that much. Let's have that gate, shall we? Why can't you forget? Animal fear. Why can't you forget animal fear? Emma continues, I was sorely disappointed when it finished. So my question is, when are you going to release the single, or the album for that matter? Sign me up, Emma. Well, Emma, obviously you have very good taste. Unfortunately, my record deal fell through, though, so no album, I'm afraid. However, please accept a new remix for your collection. Why can't you forget and forgive? Why, 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 why can't you forget and forgive? Why can't you forget and forgive? Why can't you forget and forgive? Why, 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 forgive? Oh, and by the way, Emma, please accept this soul man to breathe for yourself and all the significant others in your fold.
Another query yanked from the rubble is from Bagwant Sagu. Hello to you, sir. Bagwant asks, Perhaps you covered him and I missed it, but I think you'd be great at revisiting the career of Edgar G. Ulmer of Ruthless and Detour fame. In some ways, he reminds me of Val Luton. Well, Bagwant, thank you for your question. Unfortunately, you have missed it. I covered Mr. Ulmer in a universe of horrors and in a bonus patron episode of Attaboy Clarence, which I grant you, you may not have heard. But yes, I have done him. He also pops up in the New Shadows episode, which is on the way. I do love a bit of Edgar Ulmer. Not just any bit. Thank you for the question, though. And thank you also, Bagwant, for the delightful articles and pictures you keep pointing me towards on Twitter. I know I don't always send you lengthy messages in return, but I am seeing them, I promise. I so rarely get the chance to actually sit and write replies these days. It's all gone very manic. But rest assured that I am seeing the things that you're sending, and they're very much appreciated. As a reward, I've made you a completely random Thompson Twins Hold Me Now to Berry. Lastly today, a question from Michael Bues. Bues? Bues? I'm terribly, terribly sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name, Michael. Anyway, Michael's question is... Arg! Exclamation mark. I can't remember the name of the movie you reviewed, where some girls in town have been killed and three friends go off to a movie while he's on the loose. The killer asks a soda shop guy one of the girl's names and he waits for her in her house and kills her in the end. Spoilers, Michael Buess slash Buess. On her walk home, she needs to go through some trees and some stairs and she counts while she steps, I think. Any idea? I clicked on almost every title in the review page on your website that sounded like it. But to be honest, they all sound like they work. Lol. Was this just a radio show? Thank you, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. Well, Michael Buess slash Buess, you aren't misremembering. This is definitely a story I've presented to you. It is, in fact, a radio play I've presented, and it is actually a radio play I presented in a bonus show, which shows that you are actually a patron of the podcast, as you must have heard this on a patron-only bonus show. Anyway, the story you're thinking of is called The Whole Town Sleeping, and it was written by Ray Bradbury. I remember hearing it for the first time in my English class at school. The teacher read it to us, and it absolutely terrified me and my 20 other classmates. It's a genuinely horrifying little story with a very nasty twist in its tale. It may well have been turned into a movie at some point, but if it has, then I haven't seen it. The radio play produced by Suspense is absolutely excellent, though. So atmospheric. Anyway, in order to remove the chill that has fallen upon me since remembering that story, please accept this Canterbury wants to rule the world. And with that closes this visit to the question pot. But remember, if you'd like a question answered, then go to attaboyclarence.com and hurl your inquiry into its belly... I want to say belly. So throw your flipping questions into the shiny question pot. You might hear your question next time. So until then, get your thinky cap on for the question pot. Okay, that's the end. La pendule fait tic-tac, tic-tic. Les oiseaux du lac pic-pac, pic-pic. Glou, 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 font tous les dindons. Et la jolie cloche ding-ding-dong. Mais boum, quand notre cœur fait boum. Tout avec lui dit boum. Et c'est l'amour qui s'éveille. Boum, il chante Loving Bloom. Au rythme de ce boum qui redit boum à l'oreille. A changé depuis hier et la rue a des yeux qui regardent aux fenêtres. Y a du lilas et y a des mains tendues sur la mer, le soleil va paraître. Boum, l'astre du jour fait boum. Tout avec lui dit boum quand notre cœur fait boum boum. Le vent dans les bois fait ouh, la bichose à bois fait la vaisselle cassée fait fric fric frac et les pieds mouillés font flic flic flac mais boum. Quand notre cœur fait boum, tout avec lui dit boum, l'oiseau dit boum, c'est l'orage. Boum, l'éclair qui lui fait boum, et le bon Dieu dit boum, 
dans son fauteuil de nuage. Car mon amour est plus vif que l'éclair, plus léger qu'un oiseau qu'une abeille. Et s'il fait boum, s'il se met en colère, il entraîne avec lui des merveilles. Boum, le monde entier fait boum, tout avec lui dit boum, quand notre cœur fait boum boum. And that was Charles Trenet with Boom, which is either about some dynamite or someone with an attractive rear end. Well, let's jump into some movies, shall we? So the first one on offer for you is Problematic. For several reasons. Now, when I tell you what this film is called, you will do exactly what I did when I saw the title of this film. You will gasp and you will frown and you will wonder just how this potentially sensitive subject matter will be handled. And your morbid sense of curiosity will compel you to find out more. Okay, so stick with me on this. Not as bad as you think it's going to be. This film is from 1931 and its name is Under 18. No, no, wait, come back. It's going to be fine. This stars Marion Marsh, Regis Toomey, and the king of pre-code himself, Warren William. Deadly weather for this sort of thing. Oh. oh, I'll say so. Gee, what I could do to a Coke. A Coke? Oh, I guess you'd call it a Coca-Cola. <laughs> a Swiss cheese on rye. Oh, Would you boy. like them? Oh, well, I, I say, is there no one round here? Yes, yes. Oh, uh, yes, Mr. Harding. Will you bring me immediately? One Coke and a cheese on rye. Certainly. A large Coke or a small one? They come in assorted sizes. <laughs> well, yes, uh, uh, ten cents and a nickel. No, oh, the ten cent one by all means. Uh, yes, sir. This is the story of Margie Evans, played by Marion Marsh, a nice young girl whose family has fallen on hard times during the Depression. Her sister Sophie, played by Anita Page, is married to a compulsive gambler and is desperately unhappy. But in order to obtain a divorce, Sophie needs to come up with $200 and Margie is determined to help her. There's a lot of legal work in a case like this. A divorce ain't as simple as it's cracked up to be. Not in this state. Not even when you've got good grounds. How much will cover everything? Well, if I put up the right kind of talk, I think I can hold it down to uh, $200. Well, I, I guess we'll have to wait a couple of days. She could ask her truck driver boyfriend, Jimmy, played by Regis Toomey, who has some money saved so that he and Margie can get married. But she has far more chance borrowing some money from playboy Raymond Harding, played by Warren William, who's taken something of a shine to Margie. Mr. Harding, I... I came to see... Why don't you call me Raymond? What shall I call you? Well, they call me Margie. All right, Margie. Let's go. I came to see if you'd lend me $200. Oh, well, this is serious, isn't it? Yes, it is, but I'll pay it back. How? So my initial instinct when I saw this film was how on earth are they going to address this in a pre-code movie? I mean, I think it was kind of common for girls to be off marrying at a rather more tender age than is generally acceptable these days. You had 16-year-olds marrying their sweethearts. Just listen to half the radio shows of the day and they sometimes had teenage brides. But to plant your flag so squarely in the sand at the outset, to call your film under 18, as though this is the whole point of the story, to emphasise that the girl in this film is very young, it kind of makes her youth the whole point. And when you pit this girl against Warren William, who was very, very well known as a middle-aged cinematic Lothario at the time, that is definitely conveying a message from the outset, which makes the film itself very puzzling, because not once was Margie's age ever mentioned. 
In fact, there's a scene at the beginning where she attends her sister's wedding, and she's obviously a teenager. But we then skip ahead several years, and she's now working as a seamstress and supporting her mother, and stepping out with her truck driver boyfriend. And that's when the real story starts. And if it wasn't for that title, I would think that I would naturally assume that she was in her twenties. So I spend a great deal of this film wondering how and when her age would become an issue in this story. And I have to tell you, it never did. It was never mentioned once. Why this film is called Under 18, I will never know. In fact, I have a fair idea, and I'll get onto that in a moment. As for the story itself, it's, it's very rundown. It's not that well acted, apart from William, who's so tremendously good in most things he's in. But Marion Marsh, although stunning to look at, was never the best actress in the world. She seems to have this style of reciting her lines instead of delivering them. That makes sense. She seems to race through them emotionlessly, as though she's dying to go to the toilet or something. Anita Page is great as the disheartened sister, and Claire Dodd pops up as the wonderfully vampy Babsy. And the production design is very good, especially toward the end when we move from the tenements to the Park Avenue apartments. But the story is very corny, especially after Regis Toomey arrives at Warren Williams' place for a showdown. It really drops the ball after that; it gets terribly messy. Still, it is a fun little precode that can't quite decide if it's a comedy or a drama, and which is definitely missold by its name. Speaking of the name, I have a fair idea why it may have been called Under 18. Marion Marsh was actually 17 when they were filming this thing, and I suspect that the Warner Brothers marketing department may have been advertising the fact that Marion Marsh herself was not yet 18, hoping to draw in the exploitation dollar, and I'm sure it probably did. Disturbingly, the 17-year-old Marsh had to perform love scenes with the 33-year-old Regis Toomey and the 37-year-old Warren William. Makes you shudder a little bit. So, under 18 then. Not half as salacious as its title would suggest, but definitely a diverting way to spend 80 minutes. Marsh and William teamed up again in 1932 for Beauty and the Boss, directed by Roy Del Ruth. Now, I said the last film was problematic. This one is an absolute humdinger. You listen to a clip, and I'll dust off a piece of equipment that I'm definitely going to need in order to review this bad boy.、Uh, may I say, on behalf of myself and the entire staff, that it is indeed a great pleasure to have you with us again. It is customary on such occasions. Too many words.、Uh, but on behalf of the staff, I have prepared an address of greeting. Archaic, inefficient. But- so very quickly, the setup here is that Warren William plays the Baron von Ulrich, a stoic. Hyper-efficient businessman who shuns all distractions, even the female variety, in order to get the job done. His latest distraction is his secretary, Miss Frey, who's just that little bit too attractive. This results in him firing her and installing her instead as yet another of his many kept mistresses. But this leaves his staff in disarray. What the Baron needs is a nice dowdy girl. Yes, this is actually the plot. One that is not attractive enough to snare his eye. Step forward, down on her luck, plain Jane stenographer Susie Sacks, played by Marion Marsh. But underneath her machine-like demeanour, does a heart beat for love? I think you know the answer. I'm a stenographer, and I want a position. What? A stenographer? Please give me a job. Oh, you'll have to apply to the personnel manager, and I'm sure there are no vacancies. Oh yes, there is. I know that you just discharged your secretary. How do you know that? I have the bank doorman organized. And how do you do that? Bribe them? Oh no, I have no money. But I'm so poor they take pity on me. They telephone me when anyone's dismissed. I rushed right over. At least 100 girls will apply for that job today, and all of them as poor as church mice. Our race is so numerous. Well, I thought daytime wife was bad. I mean, don't get me wrong. I've seen many outdated and outworn attitudes in old films since I've been obsessed with them, but rarely have I stood from my chair in sheer amazement at such rampant sexism, and never have the gasps of incredulity burst so regularly from my throat as they did when I watched Beauty and the. So of course it's time to dust off the sexism klaxon. Let's just give it a toot here, because, ladies and gentlemen, we're going in. Can I help 
but if I'm pretty? No woman should look pretty who works in the bank. I thought it made men happy at the work to see a pretty woman about. Men don't come here to be happy. Women are for non-working hours. You distract me. My time's worth 5,000 an hour. Already I've lost 10 minutes looking at you. That's over 800. Here, Miss Frey, you are not a woman. What am I then? Just a writing machine. And don't forget it again. Oh, will you need a stenographer tonight? No. Possibly for clerical purposes. No. Don't squirm. I know you have hips. Make a note. All female employees of this establishment must wear long sleeves and high necks. Yes, sir. I could stay tonight if you thought you might need me. How could you imagine that we'd possibly need you? Well, I thought that... Pretty women should never think. Smartly dressed. Silk stockings over perfect legs. An exquisite pair of shoulders. In short, a very distracting young woman. Oh, Varen. Miss Ray, you'll please report yourself to the head of the personnel department. What for? To tell the manager that you are no longer employed here. You're a girl for the evening whom I met, unfortunately, only in the daytime. You're a play girl. Then you will see me sometime, even if you don't employ me? I shall see you in the evening, when there's no business day to be roided. I'll call you when I'm in a proper, or rather, an improper mood. You're a darling. I'm so happy. I have so much work to do. Oh, come on. You'll have plenty of time to work when you're old and ugly. I might as well just leave this thing on. Seriously, if I popped the klaxon every time someone says something horribly sexist, you wouldn't actually be able to hear the dialogue, which, upon reflection, may be the best way to watch this film. Other than the overwhelming sexism, is there really anything else to recommend from this film? Actually, no. Warren William is fine as usual, but everyone else, bar none, is appalling in this film. There's not one decent performance in it. The script is horrible. The story is pointless. The production design is shoddy. It's far too long. It's not funny. It's not charming. You never feel like you've been whisked away by the movie, which really is the point of any movie, isn't it? To lift you out of your life for a little while and transport you to somewhere interesting. This is probably best exemplified in a scene where Susie and the Count go out onto his Paris balcony and look over the city of love itself. And what you see is quite obviously a quite badly produced painting. And I think that's the best way of describing Beauty and the Boss. Something of an inconsequential fake. Watch it to be horrified, but certainly don't expect to be charmed away by it. Okay, lastly today, a Hitchcock movie that's been very, very maligned since its release in 1939. A film that veers wildly away from his usual blend of suspense and spies and glamorous blondes and contemporary settings. This was Hitchcock's last film in Britain before he jumped on a ship and sailed off to Hollywood to begin the second half of his career. An adaptation of a Daphne du Maurier novel, and that always works out well, doesn't it? I mean, she wrote Rebecca and The Birds, so does this one work too? Let's see, shall we? This is, of course... Jamaica in. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. That place gives me the creeps. Yeah. That place, Jamaica Inn, has got a bad name. It's not healthy, that's why. There's queer things goes on there. Eh? Queer things. I won't stop there, not if she were to offer me double fare. So the story here is of Mary Yelland, a recent orphan from Ireland who's travelled to England, and more specifically Cornwall to live with her aunt Patience, whose husband, Joss, is the landlord of the famous Jamaica Inn. And you're going where? To Jamaica Inn. To Jamaica Inn? You, uh, you can't go there. Why not? Um, Sam! This young lady wants to know why she can't go to Jamaica Inn. Will you tell her? Oh, very rough there, miss. No place for a young lady. See, even Sam knows that. But Joss isn't too happy to see Mary when she arrives. You see, Joss is the leader of a band of wreckers who make their fortune by luring ships onto the rocks around the Cornish coastline and then murdering the survivors, making off with the loot. But what will happen when Mary discovers their evil goings-on? And who else in the area might be involved? So as the story goes, Daphne du Maurier was staying at the actual Jamaica Inn and took a ride out on her horse across Bodmin Moors one afternoon. She got hopelessly lost in the fog and then darkness fell. 
For hours and hours, she wandered around as it got colder and colder, and slowly she began to wonder if she'd make it back to the inn alive. The weather on the moors gets very extreme, and she hadn't expected to be lost, so there was every chance that she wouldn't make it back alive because she wasn't prepared. In desperation, she climbed down from her horse, took him by the bridle, and instead of trying to lead him in a direction, allowed the horse to lead her in the hopes that he would lead her home. Well, after several more hours of wandering in the darkness, the horse did indeed lead her towards the faint lights of Jamaica Inn, whereupon she collapsed from exhaustion. When she awoke, she was in very bad health from her experience and was told that she would not be allowed to leave the inn for several weeks. Not wanting to waste the time, she put her mind to good use and began to hammer out a novel. And by the time her recuperation was at an end, she had a book called Jamaica Inn. Now, Du Maurier's novel is quite different from Hitchcock's film in many ways, mainly in its villain. In the book, the villain is a duplicitous vicar named Francis Davy, and his evil side isn't revealed until much later in the story. In Hitchcock's film, the villain is a wealthy landowner called Sir Humphrey Penn Gallen, played by Charles Lawton, and we arrive at perhaps the main problem with the film. You see, Charles Lawton was not only the star of the film, but also the film's producer, which gave him more clout than usual when it came to decision-making. Hitchcock was signed on to direct, and as soon as the production began, he regretted doing so, because almost every creative decision was taken by Lawton. Lawton wanted more screen time, and so to accommodate this, the reveal of his character was forced in far earlier than it should have been. It doesn't help that it's also one of the hammiest Charles Lawton performances ever, and that is saying something. I mean, when you think about this film afterwards, all you can see in your mind is Lawton preening and bellowing, and not in a good way. He's pretty awful. I warn you all of you, if you lay a finger on either of us, you'll pay for it. You know it'll come to you. You'll end swinging in the wind at execution dock with a coat of tar to keep the weather out. But Hitchcock, unfortunately, didn't have the power to rein him in. And as a result, he lost interest as the production went on, which meant that the film ended up containing none of the Hitchcock trademarks because Hitch just couldn't be bothered to argue for them. After all, he was off to America after this, so he really had nothing to lose. It really was just a hack job. And he had absolutely nothing to lose, so he didn't try. It's a real shame, as I would have loved to see his unfiltered version of what this story could have been. So let's stop focusing on the negatives for a minute and look at what's good. It begins with a very brutal, very shocking scene of a ship being wrecked and all its survivors being slaughtered. I mean, the model shot of the ship is terrible, but the shots of poor drowning sailors being dragged about of the water and stabbed to death is very nasty and yet quite compelling, so bravo there. Secondly, I do love the look of the Cornish moors that Hitchcock achieves. They're all obviously built on a set, but there's something about the light and the gloom at the edges of the screen that really adds to the foreboding atmosphere. Then you have the actors. Now, you have to immediately discount Maureen O'Hara, unfortunately. I know she became a better actress as she went on, but this is her first major film, and she's terrible. You can't take her. She's robbed us of the best cargo we've ever had. Put your down. Robbed you? Yes, thank heaven. I robbed you of your chance to stop your pocket by murdering innocent devils you've never even seen. And I'm glad. I don't care what happens. I'm glad. Shut your mouth, you little fool. Leslie Banks, who plays Joss, is a very good villain all growls and burly bullying menace. His scenes with Marie Ney, who plays Aunt Patience, are actually the best thing about this film. Their relationship is so interesting. He's obviously abusive, both physically and mentally, and she's become an almost hostage in their home, almost catatonic at times. So when Mary arrives, and when Joss shows a sexual interest in Mary, Patience's response is this strange, loaded silence. And the looks that pass between her and her husband tell several stories. He has clearly exhibited this type of behavior before because he seems almost fearful of his wife for the first time. Perhaps her pent-up rage frightens him. Perhaps she's acted on it sometime in the past. It certainly feels that way. Elsewhere in the cast, you have Melvin Johns, Wiley Watson, George Curzon, Basil Radford. I mean, a veritable stable of very fine British character actors from the 30s. As well as Emlyn Williams, a superb actor and an even more superb playwright as Joss's right-hand man. And as I say, the film does look good. 
You do feel as though you've traveled back in time. Hitchcock may not have had much say in the performance side of things, but his input into the look of the film is very evident. It's a beautifully run-down film. It would look really good on Blu-ray, actually. But ultimately, it's a film that's ruined by the overbearing and very overblown Charles Lawton. It's such a tragedy to have to say that. I love him in so many films, but he definitely ruins this film with his heavy makeup and his shouty acting. It's a shame, as Hitchcock and Du Maurier usually go together like apple pie and ice cream, but on this occasion, the whims of a star-slash-producer spoiled what should have been a thrilling little period romp. Check it out by all means, but don't expect a classic. Now, in order to get myself in the Du Maurier mood, I actually took a trip down to the real-life Jamaica Inn, which is touristy, to say the least. And while I was there to soak up the atmosphere, I grabbed a bag full of goodies to give away to one of you lucky people. So in the bag, I have a copy of the Du Maurier novel, Jamaica Inn, bought from the actual Jamaica Inn itself. I have a special book called The Inn on the Moor, which has all kinds of history about the place, including Daphne du Maurier's time there and all about the ghosts that haunt the area, etc. I have a Jamaica Inn fridge magnet, because we all love a fridge magnet. And I have some Jamaica Inn chocolate. It's handmade Cornish toffee apple chocolate that you can only get at Jamaica Inn. So... In order to be in the running to win this bag of booty, it's very simple. You just follow the link in the show notes of this episode or go to attaboyclarence.com and look for competition in the sidebar. When you get there, you'll find four pictures of British pubs. Now, I want you to choose which one is from the real-life Jamaica Inn. All the details of how to submit your answer are on the page and I'll draw the winner on the next show. Easy, right? Well, on to some radio then. Now, Charles Lawton wasn't always as hammy as he is in Jamaica Inn. He was one of the greatest thespians of the 20th century when he wanted to be, so let's give him a chance to redeem his good name by presenting him in an episode of Suspense that I've always liked very much. This is an episode called De Mortuis, so I'll leave you in Mr. Lawton's hands for half an hour and I will see you on the other side. Tonight, Autolite brings you Charles Lawton in De Mortuis, a suspense play produced and directed by Anton M. Leder. Friends, the Autolite Company also presents the Autolite Stay Full Battery, a powerful package for practical people who prefer pep and performance. Why, by Cornelius, the Autolite Stay Full Battery is so different, delightful, and de-lacking in thirst, it needs water only three times a year in normal car use. Yes, sir, Autolite Stay Full is the battery with the big buoyant reservoir that needs water only three times a year in normal car use. An Autolite Stay Full battery has an extra ample sample of Aquapura. It's as full of H2O as a Florida orange is full of juice, a Texas grapefruit full of succulent sap. So, friends, here's the pitch. Be right with Autolite. Switch to an Autolite Stay Full battery tomorrow. And now, Autolite presents Charles Lawton in a tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. Now a bit more there. A touch of smoothing here. And that's a job well done. It's not a bad job for the village medico. I don't think a mason could have done better. Until the concrete hardens, I'd better... Doctor! Oh, ah, there you are. Didn't you be yours? I thought I had some, and I wasn't sure. 
Well, we, we were going out after some partridge, and, and I thought you'd like to come along. Uh, we, we wouldn't have come in the house, only George thought that uh, seeing as the door was open and all, that someone was home. Aye. So we walked in, and, and then I saw the cellar door open, and down we came. And, uh, where's Irene? Irene? Oh, she's gone visiting. Oh, well, then let's go shooting. I, oh, wet concrete. <laughs> Going in for a bit of masonry, Doc? There's been some water seeping up through this floor. It's an underground spring, perhaps. Underground spring? Why, Doc, I sold you this house, but I never heard of a spring beneath it. <laughs> Doc, it looks as though Greg built you, it did. Not Doc, I didn't. You know, when he came up from London a year ago, I could tell right away that he was a fine fella. Ah, when he and Irene wanted to get married, I, I sold him the best house in the village. Now, maybe it was only the rains, Greg. Well, I don't know. You, <laughs> you certainly went deep enough, Doc. Hey, you see, you've got a bit of clay on your shovel. That's four feet down, the clay. Eighteen inches, George. Uh, not according to the maps. Uh, four feet, it says on the Sudbury maps. Ah, well, there's no need to argue the toss. Let's get on with our fouling before the partridge gets tired of waiting, eh, Doc? Well, not today, boys. I've got things to do. Oh. Well, well we might as well get along. Um, how's Irene? Oh, she's never been better. Uh, she took the afternoon train to North Walsham. To North Walsham? Well, there's no afternoon train to North Walsham. No more than the clay is only 18... Did I, did I, did I, uh, did I say North Walsham? Uh, I, I meant uh, Norwich. Oh, are you uh, friends in Norwich, Doc? Mrs Slater, she lived next door when Irene was just a child. Over on Victoria Cross. Slater? Next door to Irene? No. Oh, that was a long time ago, Greg. Oh, well, I've been in Sudbury all my life, and I've known Irene all my life. Never any Slaters on Victoria Cross. Right, George? Aye. I lived on Victoria Cross myself. Clay's four feet down there, same as here. Now, let's drop the whole thing. Maybe the woman married it again, and that's why you don't recognize the name. Oh, well, maybe. Well, you better change your mind about the hunting, Doc. Your wife's away on a visit. You just finished filling a hole in the cellar, and... And... Oh, good heavens, Ducky. You didn't. Four feet down to the clay, that's what it is. What are you two fools talking about? Oh, it's not that you didn't have provocation, Doc. We, we know that. Provocation? Are you suggesting that I... that I... Re you stupid fools, you go get the constable and let him start digging. Oh, now, hold on, Doc. It, it's not as if we mind. If it could ever be called justified, this is it. Aye. We could have told you. I, I warned you about the bad houses to buy, not half I did. But when it comes to marriage, well, we all knew Irene. The Sudbury baggage. That's what we used to call her. Uh, and when a fine chap like you comes along and fixes to marry her, well, you want to say something, but but what? But what, I ask you? It's not like buying a house, it ain't. I suppose I am rather old for Irene. Well, you could be a young'un, it'll be just the same thing, Doc. Now, not everyone wants the same thing. I'm a sort of a dry chap, and I don't open up easily. And Irene, well, you'd call her kind of gay. Aye, <laughs> <laughs> that's one She's word. She's no housekeeper, I know that, and that's not the only thing a man wants. She enjoys herself. Oh, that she did. And that's what I love about her. She's not very deep mentally. Well, all right, you can say she's stupid. I don't care. She's lazy, no system. Well, I've got plenty of system, enough for both of us. She's enjoyed herself, and it's beautiful and innocent, like a child. If that was all... But you two seemed to know that there was more. Why, everyone knows it. George, you just tell him what you saw at the pub. Aye, you know me, Doc. I'm no pub crawler. I'm a single potter. But every night the past week, when I've gone in for my pot of ale, she's been there, and with that Harry Manning, the commercial traveller, who's been at the Lion. Everybody's seen her. The village will be on your side, Doc. Oh, aye. And not that it'll mean much if it comes to a trial. What shall I do? Well, we all make mistakes, Doc. You know, in a way, we, we got you into it by not saying anything before you married her. And the way I see it, well, it's, it's sort of up to us to help get you out of it. That right, George? Uh, aye. Uh, still, there's such a thing as being an accomplice. No, not, not the way we'll do it. When we came in here, the street was empty, wasn't it? Aye. And we haven't been down in the cellar. You get that, Doc? We shouted upstairs, but when you didn't answer, we went on after Partridge. We never came down in this cellar. I wish you hadn't. Now, all you have to do, Doc, is say that Irene went for a walk and never come back. And George and I'll say that we saw her driving away with this commercial traveller. Uh, what's his name, George? Harry Manning. Ah. 
He was paying his score at the Lion this morning, so I guess he's moving on. Ah, the whole village knows about him and Irene, what? so they'll believe that she she might leave with him. Oh, well, we we better nip off now. Uh, we'll go out the back way. I, I, I'd cover up that fresh cement if I were you, Doc. Aye, and don't be telling folks the clay is only 18 inches down. The whole village knows about this. Oh, no, no. Why did they have to come down here? Why can't they keep their mouths shut? Why tell the patient he has a cancer? Why? Yeah, I'm back. I'm down here, Irene. Oh, can you beat it? I missed the train. Oh? Which, uh, which way did you come back? I walked across the field. I was in. It's twice as fast as the village. If you'll drive me to Colchester, maybe I can catch the train there. Maybe. Did you meet anyone coming back? No, no, sir. Oh, aren't you finished with that dirty job yet? No. No, I'm afraid that I shall have to take up this floor again. Come on down here, dear. I'll show you. For suspense, Autolite is bringing you Charles Lawton, in radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. You know, uh, Hap, during that bitter cold spell... Oh, no, cold spell? Why, this is Southern California. Uh, I was in Montana, where zero is another name for prickly heat. <laughs> well, I was telling a fellow about how to get uh, summertime operation out of his car. By Cornelius, I said, get one of those Autolite Stay Full batteries with the extra liquid reserve. Friend, there's enough extra water in an Autolite Stay Full battery to irrigate Death Valley or make a rainstorm in the Sahara. Oh, not that much, huh? Grabbing his arm, I said, those Autolite Stay Full batteries need water only three times a year. Yes, sir, only three times a year in normal car use. And hanging on to his muffler... Muffler? Well, what kind? The double-chested kind in Montana. Oh. And I told him the extra plates in an Autolite Stay Full battery mean this rugged receptacle has a rapid response and a raft of reserve. And then I said, as the button pulled off his coat, Autolite Stay Full batteries... Hello, that's my coat. Oh, sorry, Hap, here's your button. Autolite Stay Full batteries are just another one of the 400 automotive, aviation, and marine parts from one of the 28 plants of the Autolite Company. And now, Autolite brings back to our Hollywood soundstage Charles Lawton in De Mortuis, a tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. There you are, Mrs. Green. I'll be sure you come back next week for another injection. We'll have you feeling fit in no time. Well, I... How much will they be, these injections, Doctor? Three shillings apiece, Mrs. Green. Now, there's no need to pay it right away. We'll see about that later. Oh, now, that's just like you. Always doing something for others with never a thought to yourself. You know, Doctor, I was talking to Mrs. Pox about you only the other day. Oh, yes? It's no good, I says, for a man to be living alone. Say what you will about it. A year it is now since that, uh, uh, she left you. Good riddance it was. And it's time you was looking about. Do you mean to say it's really a year since Irene left? You know, the time seems much shorter than that. You know, it's not that we yelled with divorce, Doctor, but if there was ever a man justified, you're that man. Justified, you said? You know, it's very odd how a word like that keeps uh, being mentioned. <laughs> Mrs. Green, I know that you mean, well, I'd rather not talk about it, if you don't mind. Well, a body can't help yes, thinking... I'm sure that... of that. Now, you come, come in again next week for your injection, and don't you forget... I won't do that, Doctor, and you think I will... Good day, Mrs. Green. Yes? You, the doctor. Yes, I'm Dr. Rankin. Won't you come in? Uh, don't mind if I do. Now, what seems the trouble, Mr... Uh, uh, Manning, Manning, Harry Manning. Harry Manning, your name seems familiar. Yeah, I dare say. I'm a commercial traveller. Most of the boys around the villages know me. 
And a few of the women, I suppose. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say no, Doctor. You know how it is. I suppose I do. Now, what did you say was wrong, Mr. Manning? Well, I don't rightly know, Doc. Uh, just feeling a bit under the weather. It hit me just as I was driving into Sudbury. So I looked for the nearest doctor in your eye. So I see. Well, I think I'd better examine you, Mr. Manning. Would you remove your shirt, please? Yeah. Have you been uh, in Sudbury before, Mr. Manning? Yeah. Once a year, Doc, as regular as the calendar. It's a fine little place. Did you say that you just arrived? You haven't checked in at the inn yet? Uh, you're my first stop, Doc. Like I said, I was feeling a bit out of the weather and I wanted to check up on it. You see, uh, I wanted to look up an old friend here. I felt I'd uh, better be feeling just right. Uh -huh. uh, Sorry, maybe you know her, Doc. A downy bit by the name of Irene. Irene? I don't believe I know her. What was her last name? Would you breathe a little deeper, please? You know, she never did tell me her last name. I got the idea she was hammered for proper. Hammered? Yeah, married. Didn't want her old man to know she was out seeing life. Oh, she was a real live chicken, a neat one she was. I'm afraid that I never knew uh, your Irene. Well, I can probably find her by asking down at the pub. Uh, they'll know her. No doubt. I imagine you're anxious to find her. <laughs> you said it, Doc. As soon as you put me to rights, I'll sign in at the lion, then I'll pop her out the pub. Of course. How long has it been uh, since you've seen a doctor? Oh, four or five years. Aye. What are you trying to tell me, Doc? I'm afraid, Mr. Manning, that your heart is not in the best of condition. Oh, are you trying to tell me that I'm, I'm going to, to pop off? You might live many years, Mr. Manning, but if I were you, I would avoid any sort of excitement. In the meantime, I'll give you something that will give you a temporary relief. It, you wouldn't be kidding me, would you, Doc? Kidding, Mr. Manning? You know, pulling me leg? Not at all. You may put your shirt on, Mr. Manning. How long have I got, Doc? Give it to me straight. Well, that might be difficult to say, Mr. Manning. Uh, so many things must be considered in a case like yours. I would say that how long you live depends on the way that you follow my advice. Oh, I'll do anything you say, Doc. Fine. First of all, I want you to take this capsule. Here's some water. Oh, all right. How often do I take them, Doc? I think that one will fix you up for the time. If it doesn't just come back, I'll give you another one. You mean that just one will do the trick? Say, that's great, Doc. How much do I owe you? Two shillings. Two shillings? Certainly reasonable enough. I thought it'd be at least a quid. Here you are. Thank you. With that medicine to fix you up, Mr. Manning, you should have no trouble at all finding your Irene. <laughs> Busy, Doc. Hello, George. Come on in. Who was the bloke leaving your office before, Doc? He looked familiar. He's a commercial traveller. He said his name was Harry Manning. I could have... <gasps> Harry Manning. He's the one. I believe that he is the gentleman that you and Greg have mentioned several times. Uh, what did he want? A doctor, strangely enough. He wasn't feeling very well. Uh, did, uh, did he know who you were? That I was a doctor, yes. Uh, no more? No. He'll be going straight to the pub, won't he? I imagine he will. Although I told him to avoid excitement, he has a bit of a bad heart. Aye. Now, what's wrong with you, George? Or is this a social call? A bit of both, Doc. Uh, we've been friends for a long time. Ever since I arrived in Sudbury, I suppose in a way you and Greg are the only friends I've had. That's what I've had in mind, I did. You see, Doc... I'm in a spot of trouble, and I thought you might want to give me a hand. Gladly if I can. What's the trouble, George? Well, uh, money troubles, Doc. I have a lot of bills that must be paid. If you're talking about my bill, George, you should know that I won't press you. Oh, I wasn't worrying about that. The truth is, Doctor, I need about a hundred quid. Yitch. hundred pounds? And I was thinking maybe you might... Loan it to me. I would if I had it, George, but you know that I'm not one of those Harley Street toughs. My patients pay two or three shillings when they can pay. You could raise it, maybe. Perhaps, but I, I think that you could find a loan easier than I could, George. You've lived around here all your life. Aye, and I know what I know. It's four feet down to the clay. That's what it is. I see. You are... Dr. Rankin? Gregory here, Doc. Thought maybe you'd like to go out after some partridge this afternoon. 
No, Greg, I, I don't think that... Oh, uh, why, uh, yes. Uh, yes, I, I might. I might at that. It'll do me good to get away from the office. And uh, George is here now. Perhaps he'll go with us. Would you hold on? It's Greg George. He wants to go hunting. What do you say? What about my hundred quid? Oh, I think I can help you, George. But what about the hunting? I don't care if I do. Fine. Uh, uh, George will go with us, too. It'll be like old times, huh? Good. All right. Meet at my place. I know. There's nothing like old friends getting together, is there, George? Aye. Especially when they can help each other. I'll get the money for you. Somewhere or other, considering the cause, I guess we might say that almost any method is justified. <laughs> boy. Well, there's a bit of a chill today. Should mean a good bag. You and George must have gotten chilled waiting for me. I'm sorry I was a bit late. Oh, well, couldn't be helped. Yeah, what was the call? A commercial traveler. He had a heart attack on the street. It, that wouldn't be the same one that was coming out of your office today, would it, Doc? Yes, it was the same man. Well, fancy that. It'd be funny, Doc, if it turned out you gave him the wrong medicine by mistake. I never prescribe mistakes, George. You, um, might as well let the dog go, Greg. We're coming to a good spot. I'll bet off to the left. You two can keep to the right. All right, boy. Flush him. I'll lay you a quid I beg more than of you. Done, George. Hey, Doctor, George seems a little nervy today, like he had the wind up about something. You got an idea what's wrong? No, he seemed all right when he was at my office earlier. Hey, look, the dog's struck a point. Ah, oh, that he has. I'll swing to the right, Greg. That way we'll have them between George and myself, and you'll have them in front. All right, Greg. Rush him, boy. Hey, Doc! George! I got two of them! Doc, that first shot, I, I think it hit George! What? Good heavens. George. Oh, only hundred quid. That's no cause to... I... I tried to stop you, Doc. I, I could see your gun wasn't swinging high enough. I, I thought I was aiming high. But I wanted to hit the birds before they scattered. God help me. Oh, Lord. Look at the blood on him. Well, can't you do something for him, Doc? I'm afraid I can't help him now, Chuck Craig. He's dead. Sit down, Greg. I'll fix some drinks. He was no more than 30 feet away, just, just standing there waiting for the birds to flush. I should have seen him. Uh, was that what you meant, George? No, no, I didn't say that, Doc. No, I, I, I was just thinking. Yes, I know how it is. Here's your drink. Thanks. Uh, no, I I just couldn't drink. Uh, not yet. Uh, Doc, I, I, I want to ask you something. Of course, what is it, Greg? That that commercial traveler who had the art attack, the one that George mentioned, was his name Harry Manning? I believe it was, now that you mention it. It was something like that. Oh, I see. Doc, why don't you leave Sudbury? Go to some other village. England's full of quiet little villages where a doctor can build up a good practice. But I already live in such a village, Greg. I like Sudbury, and I have certain plans. But, Doc, it may be dangerous for you if you stay. Are you threatening me, Greg? No, no, of course not, only I... A man, uh, especially at my age, can't simply pick himself up and start all over again. I've spent a great deal here, not only of money, but of myself. I like this place and its people, most of them. I, I know, Doc, I understand, but... As but for even the danger, so... I believe that I can take care of that. Oh, do, you, do you remember my cellar, Greg? Your... Seller? Why, 
What about well, it? Well, it's hardly a cellar now. I've turned it into a research laboratory. It's full of the best equipment. Come on, I'll show you. Oh, no, no, not now, Doc. Uh, some other now, time. Greg, I... you're my friend, my only friend now that George is gone. I want you to see it. No, Doc, I... I... Now, come on, Greg. Go ahead, go ahead, Greg. Well, you... You... What are you talking about? You haven't done anything to the cellar. It's, it, it's just the same as it was that, that day. Here, I'm going to... Oh. You're going to what, Greg? Who, what did you do? What did you stick with me with? A hypodermic needle, Greg. It's an honorable symbol of my profession. And uh, don't try to leave, Greg. You'll never make the stairway. Now, you see... Uh... Have, have you... Killed me? Not yet, Greg. Now, do you feel that I have to kill you, that you know too much and you suspect even more? You've got too many secrets to keep to yourself. Is that, that it, Greg? You, you did kill that commercial traveler. And then you got to worrying about what George and I knew. Mm -hmm. And that's so how you killed George, and now you're going to kill me. I should have turned you in a year ago. Yes, yes, you should have, Greg. You see, uh, there was water seeping through the floor... I did find clay only 18 inches down. When you came in that day, I didn't know anything about Irene except that I loved her and was happy. What do you mean? You mean that Irene wasn't? No, 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 no. Irene was not dead then. You see, Greg, if anyone is guilty of murder, it is you and George. You, you, you killed my happiness. It was you who killed Irene through my hand, and it was you who brought up the commercial traveler, although it was my medicine. It was you who killed him, as surely as if you'd struck him down in the street. It was George. Now, George wanted to transfer his secret to his wallet. And you, Greg, when the secret became three secrets, you found it too heavy for you. Oh, you're mad, Doctor. You, you'll never get away with it. With all of us? I came to Sudbury wanting to serve it, to share the sickness and the poverty as well as the simple day-to-day -day existence of all of you. I asked no more than that. I wanted... Help! Now, you quiet, quiet, you Help! I won't have you spoil things now. Dr. Rankin? Dr. Rankin? Well, he's here. There's no doubt about it. The door was open. Unless he went out on a hurry call. Dr. Rankin? It's uh, Constable Saunders. I guess he is out. There's no great hurry on this anyway, Constable. Why don't I come back in the morning? All right, then. Come along. Phew. Well, it's all right indeed. By tomorrow morning when they return, there won't be a trace of you left, and I'll be free and safe, and no one will ever be the wise, Anne. What on earth's that? I tell you, Jones, I saw the cellar light on just as we turned the corner. There. You see? The light under the door there. Oh, right you are, sir. Must be down the cellar. Didn't hear it. Phew. Dr. Rankin? Oh, glad I raised you, Doctor. You forgot to sign the death certificate on that... Uh, commercial traveller to die. I say, what are you doing down there, Doctor? <laughs> I'm, uh, <laughs> well, you might as well come down uh, the rest of the way, Constable, and uh, I'll, uh, I'll show you. And that was Charles Lawton in a very sinister episode of Suspense. Thank you so much. Well, that's it from me for this edition. Thank you for joining me. Just time to tell you about the next episode, which will be a Halloween special. That'll be out on October the 29th, two weeks from now. Brooks Inside Looks will be returning. Brooks has been busy scouring the Library of Congress for some Halloween-related facts. Plus, there'll be spooky goings-on in the rest of the show, so make sure you keep them peeled for that. If you're a patron, there's a bonus show out in the next couple of days where I'll be reviewing four more movies. In fact, they're all scary films too. They're the four movies that you've been voting on for the past week for the next film club, which is on October 28th this month. So if you're undecided about which film to vote for, 
listen to the bonus show this week and perhaps you'll be able to make your mind up. I have to say, at the moment, it looks like a hotly contested race between 1932's The Most Dangerous Game and 1936's The Man Who Changed His Mind, both of which are really brilliant. And remember, if you aren't a patron yet, sign up. It starts from just $1 a month, hardly any money at all. And you get bonuses galore, film club nights, ebooks, bonus shows, movie commentaries, previews, all kinds of stuff. To sign up, listen on to the end of this very show, and God bless you if you do. Until next time, then, take awfully good care of yourselves, and bye for now. If you'd like to support this show, you can do so by going to www.attaboyclarence.com and clicking on the Patreon banner. Pledges start from as little as $1 a month. And in return, you'll receive exclusive emails, bonus episodes, previews, and ebooks. And every dollar pledged goes towards making these shows better and more frequent. Go to www.attaboyclarence.com or click the link in the show notes now to become a patron. Thank you. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.